welcome to another interview with In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Simon Brown, a co-host of the podcast and PhD candidate in history at UC Berkeley, and I had the chance to speak with Alexander Zevin, an assistant professor of history at the City University of New York and editor at the New Left Review. We talked about his new book, Liberalism at Large, The World According to the Economist, published by Verso in 2019. The book charts a new approach to the history of liberalism from the 19th to the 21st century, which it follows through the pages of one of its most iconic representatives, The Economist magazine. We discuss the paper's move from the voice of pure principles to common sense, the meaning of new and neoliberalism in the history of an already diverse political tradition, and the possibilities of framing that history around persistent questions rather than stable answers. So I want to start with a couple questions about the context in which James Wilson founded The Economist in the 1840s, his initial vision for the paper and the liberalism it would represent, and some of the ways that may have changed, uh, according to your story. And so I think it might make sense to begin with the title of the paper, uh, The Economist. Uh, you cite early articles that show in the paper that it rejected the very term political economy. Uh, because it insisted that an approach through economy uh, did not need to be tied to a politi political project. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how early contributors and the first editor and founder kind of balance this insistence that the economy is something that can be studied outside of politics on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's kind of explicit identification with a liberal project, in this case particularly, the repeal of the Corn Laws. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question. Uh, I was much struck by that passage where um, they describe uh, the Economist talks about the contradiction in terms, right? That that political and economy, those two words don't don't quite belong together, since politics is, you know, but guesswork and assumption, uh, whereas uh, uh, political economy is a science, as as a science laid down by Smith. Uh, is immortal. Um, I think, though, at, at the start, uh, uh, you know, um, the the Economist is is is, is it's clearly a, a, a magazine with a political agenda, right? So, in order to achieve a state in which politics and economics can be separated, politics first has to triumph. Uh, 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 you know, I mean, Polanyi said as much. You know, laissez-faire was planned. Planning wasn't. Uh, so um, Wilson it provides an excellent example of that. He's a member of the Anti-Corn Law League. He, he, he's a hat manufacturer to start with, but he begins to write about political economy, joins the Anti-Corn Law League, uh, and in fact gives the Anti-Corn Law League one of their, their better arguments for why the corn laws should be uh, abolished, um, basically arguing for a natural harmony theory of the economy um, rather than the, the kinds of arguments favored by Cobden and Bright which involves, uh, you know, Ricardian con con conflict um, uh, against the owners of land. Uh, uh, no, uh, James Wilson said, in fact, uh, if we abolish the corn laws, everyone will benefit. Wages will rise, profits will rise, and so will rents. Uh, and um, uh, 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 this was, of course, a, a, a much more attractive argument, especially given the fact that Wilson was attempting to reach not just the members of the Anti-Corn Law League and the rising middle classes, but the uh, grandees, uh, 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 the old Whig grandees who 
such as Charles Villiers uh, uh, um, uh, and uh, and uh, uh, a, num a number of uh, William Plato Bouverie and a number of other uh, key uh, uh, aristocrats uh, uh, who also favored the abolition uh, of, of the Corn Laws. Um, so it's an it's an entirely political project uh, from the start, and when um, when James Wilson uh, enters government in 1847, the Economist is founded in 1843, uh, that becomes really clear. Um, uh, James Wilson rises to become uh, a, a high-ranking secretary of the treasury, and he is constantly exchanging minutes uh, with uh, members of the cabinet. Uh, he plays a role in, um, in, 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 in uh, uh, formulating policy towards the Irish famine, uh, and uh, I mean, I could, I could, I could go on about this, but um, the 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 point is that um, the the abolition of the Corn Laws for James Wilson is just one sort of wedge, uh, and he, of course, goes on to then push for the abolition of all sorts of other protectionist laws, the navigation laws. Uh, he wants to see um, you know tariffs reduced with uh, individual countries that the that Britain is trading with Brazil. Sugar. He wants to see the West Indies um, monopoly on 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 um, on, on uh, certain colonial commodities. You know, uh, wants to see that ended. Mm -hmm. So I'm 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 um, I'm. I guess what I'm trying to say is that this comment about political economy that you you pointed to is is a very interesting one. I think it points to the future, where uh, you know the, where 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 um, economics is going to go when it becomes kind of a science as opposed to the much more political project that it is at the beginning. Uh, the Economist is already, there's a glimmering of that, but the, the, there's, I think, no um, sort of mistaking the really political nature of, of the project of instituting laissez-faire in Britain. It requires taking power, uh, and The Economist is connected to that project of taking state power. Yeah, and I was interested, kind of, as you were saying, the, the talking about the way in which the economy and econ economics is becoming conceived in these early days as more of a science. And I was wondering, because you show how Wilson, kind of from the beginning, intended the paper to be independent from the Anti-Corn Law League, though, in support of it. Um, and he said that it would supply, I quote, nothing but pure principles, mm. uh, and presumably principles of economics. Mm. And so kind of fast forwarding, you know, over a century, um, I was struck much later in the book, you were talking about um, Harold Macmillan kind of praising the history of The Economist as a magazine. And he talks about one of the early editors, Walter Badgett, and he says that he was somebody who was not wedded to doctrine. And in fact, he was kind of uh, representative of The Economist as a, a, a source of common sense and pragmatism. Mm. And it struck me that that seemed like a kind of an interesting shift where early on the paper is associated with kind of doctrine and principles, whereas even maybe uh, by the end of the 19th century, it's associated with a kind of common sense, pragmatist approach. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how, about that change, um, about whether or not that just means kind of liberal laissez-faire is becoming the common sense of, of, of British mainstream politics, or is this some change that's going on kind of within the paper and the way it presents its, its arguments? Uh, I think that, that's a great question, and I think it's both. Um, 
Walter Badgett is the one, and, and you know, and Wilson is referencing Badgett, who you know he's, he studied Badgett at school, and he's referencing him there. Um, Badgett is the one that, um, in the 1860s and 70s, looking back at the early years of the Anti-Corn Law League and of the triumph of uh, and, and, and of the abolition of the Corn Laws in, in 1846, says you know the form of political economy the English school of political economy, and, and, he, and he's there contrasting it with, with newer developments. He's thinking of the onset of, of basically the, the neoclassical revolution. He doesn't much like it, doesn't much care for the German historical school either, really thinks that the greatest contribution that England has made to the, to the world is its science of political economy, um, which he says has settled down into the common sense of the nation. But he's quite clear that that required a huge battle waged by his predecessor and father-in-law, James Wilson. Um, and even though Badgett disagrees in many respects, and especially as a young man when he's, when he's reading some of Wilson's tracks, he's a little bit alarmed at the amoralism um, uh, of, of the economist. The economist is constantly railing against would-be philanthropists and philosophers who wish to do good by interfering in the, in the, um, you know, in, interfering in the market. Um, nothing good can come from that ever, and that includes anyone who would like to see a sanitation uh, or uh, health reform, factory inspectors, um, mm. uh, 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 or, or anything like that. So um, it, it, it's, it's, it's both that this prior disembedding of the market from society through a virulent form of laissez-faire um, um, onslaught uh, is necessary, uh, to, 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 to achieve some kind of common sense understanding of the way that political economy works, ought to work. And it's that Badgett can then come, come in in the 1860s and 70s already and say, well, look, it's, it's, it's not always the case that, um, you know, the market is right. You know, uh, for example, just in, 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 in terms of economics alone, you know, something like a central bank is, 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 is needed. Right, um, in in part because taken too far, Bad, Badgett is a banker. First of all, he's he's the he's a he's a well connected uh, banker from a family in Bristol, uh, who comes to London as the representative of Stuckey's Bank, as well as the editor of the Economist, um, and you know ba Wilson uh, argues in the earlier period he's a member of the banking school. He argues that basically no reserve is necessary to back up a given bank's notes issue. Um, and and for, for, for Badgett, who is a kind of naturally, a, a, a natural born banker, um, who's, who's seen just, for example, the Overend and Gurney crisis take place. And a lot of Lombard Street, his famous book about the way the city of London works, is in response to that, to that particular crisis, um, in which the joint stock bank, Overend and Gurney, fails. Uh, there's, a, there's a run on the bank and it, and it fails. He he has seen the kinds of uh, financial crises that are that are that are bred by the by the basically financialization of, of, of the British economy and its increasingly mm -hmm. outward direction. He says, you know, this is an example of the way in which laissez-faire went went too far. And in order to stabilize and to control the extent of these 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 rather enormous economic crises, we, we have to ha place limits on it. So I mean, that's just that's just one example. There are a number mm -hmm. of others. Uh, so, so I, I don't know if that perfectly answers your question, but I think that you know the triumph of laissez-faire is then the thing that allows some deviations 
away from it, and that then allows Badgett and the Economist itself to kind of pose as pragmatic, no nonsense managers mm-hmm. of of the of the British economy. Right. Yeah. No. So that that does make a lot of sense, and it leads to a, another question I had, kind of also about um, maybe changes in the paper self presentation, but also. Uh, kind of the, con- the political context in which it existed between Wilson and maybe Badgett or some of the editors of the later 19th century. Um, you show how Wilson, in kind of in early writings, both in The Economist and before, uh, tried to kind of askew the language of class enmity and argued that uh, the repeal of the Corn Laws and a lot of these liberal trade policies would benefit everybody. Uh, agricultural and industrial sectors. Um, and uh, if we take it to the end, or a few years later, you have critics and close readers, someone like Karl Marx, um, who, on the other hand, very much associates the paper with a particular class, calling it you know, the paper of the aristocracy of finance. Um, so I was wondering if, if, there is a, if, there's some, if there's something to Marx's evaluation of of the paper uh, by, say, the later of the 19th century, whether it be while Badgett is the editor or later, does the paper kind of come to present itself as the paper of a particular class of, of banking, of, of capitalists in general? Or does it still present, as maybe Wilson intended, as a, a paper that represents the interests of everybody and potentially readership of everybody? Uh, yeah, I think I think it's the latter. I think that the Economist, at least in its own self presentation, uh, is interested in speaking, not necessarily on behalf of everyone, but um, uh, for ca- for let's say for capital as a whole. Uh, so um, you know they're perfectly willing to condemn trade unionism or to uh, attack um, you know uh, the Boers. Uh, uh, during the Second Boer War uh, in 1899 to 1902. Uh, so it's not as though they don't take a side. They, they, they tend to, when pushed, to take the side of, 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 of British capital and of, of the British ruling class. But um, in, in, a, in a more general way, uh, the economist, I, th- I think, tries to, to pronounce um, on the interests of capital as a whole. So uh, as an example of this, when in the 1920s and 30s, Keynes and others begin to suggest that the sort of the city of London centered um, construction of, of policy, you know, relatively high interest rates, the gold standard, things like this, um, are hurting the industrial economy. You know, the, this, this, it's not, not new, the, the, the notion of north-south divide and regional sort of uneven development within the British economy, um, a southern service sector and the northern industry. Uh, basically, when, during that period, there's a particularly acute argument about this. And, you know, the economist ins- is insistent that it, 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 that there, you know, really cannot be a, 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 a form of policy making that would place the interests of finance over and above those of industry. Right, that that the kind of classical model of, of economic uh, sort of doctrine that they're defending at the time, uh, because they are insistent that you know 
balanced budget, the gold standard, um, uh, uh, and so forth are, are, are necessary to stage a recovery, um, uh, uh, that, you know, this is, this, 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 this is uh, the right way forward for everyone. So, so that language persists, you know, do you, do you see what I mean? It's, um, it, it's not as though they say, yes, finance is, uh, should be in the driving seat and uh, we represent the voice of, of finance, even as I in my book argue that there, there are, there's a, quite a lot of evidence to suggest that that's precisely what they, they, the, the class or the, the, the economic sector that they have been most uh, deeply intertwined with since the you know, 1850s or 60s. But, 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 but that, 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 it's precisely that capacity to speak on behalf of capital in general as opposed to a fraction of capital that I think gives the paper its strength. And the reason that, that Wilson's argument uh, was so effective in the 1840s about the kind of benefits that all classes of the community would see from uh, the advent of free trade, including Irish peasants, um, uh, is, 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 is that it was universalistic and it, it could appeal to a kind of national project. Um, it could be hegemonic in other words. Um, and, and, and I think that's, that's important. Yeah. And so that's, that's interesting. It kind of helps, I think, explain a little bit or answer a little bit of my next question about kind of what set the economist apart. If it was set apart from the burgeoning financial press of the 1880s, um, the financial times is founded, I think 1883, um, there are kind of other papers that are also providing the kind of practical financial and business information that The Economist also provides in addition to its uh, kind of journalistic coverage and commentary. Is, is it this is it this uh, attempt uh, to speak for ev- for the entire economy that distinguishes it from these from this financial press? Um, or is it more similar to these these publications that are directly appealing to bankers uh, than perhaps its contemporaries allowed. Uh, yeah. So the the advent of the Financial Times and of other of other uh, the Financial News and other specifically um, sort of city city centered papers uh, uh, in that in that period. Um, I think one of the things that distinguishes the Economist from those other papers is. Is his reputation for for honesty, mm. uh, uh, because a lot of those papers are 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 puffing shares. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they're they're they have inside information or tips. Um, they're this you know they're sort of they're letting those who play the stock market, um, you know, from order from ordinary citizens or re- relative middle class people to 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 stock jobbers and brokers and. Um, uh, and, and fixers and so forth. You know what what to do, what to know. And the Economist, I think, never never pretends to um, provide tips, right? It's not it's not it's not the paper you read in order to understand how to make a quick buck on the stock exchange, right? Um, it's it's uh, its ambitions are are much bigger than that. Uh, I mean, it is connected to the rise of high finance within the British and global economy. But I think it's connected to a vision of politics as well, and I think that that is what is missing from many of those those newer entrants. Uh, uh, the Economist is really the first paper of its kind 
Um, and uh, I think one of the things that it, it does is allow us to see the global economy as a whole. It's the first paper to publish wholesale price indexes, and it's constantly on the hunt for new uh, data. Um, and even to this day, it provides excellent charts and graphs and, um, and infographics. And uh, you know, this has always been a strength of, of the paper. It allows us to kind of conceive of the global economy. And if you're a British investor in London or you're a British statesman in London, you are reading The Economist in part to understand the political conditions that are prevailing in a given uh, country, uh, a city, or municipality, you know, whether it's the waterworks that are being built in Argentina, in Buenos Aires with British capital, or gold mines in uh, New South Wales, mm -hmm. uh, uh, or uh, Indian jute production, or railway, railway construction, uh, or, or, and so on and so forth, uh, the kind of the political basis to that form of, of, of foreign investment abroad, I think, is a is a is a is a is a unique um, way of, of viewing of conceptualizing the world. And I don't think the Financial News, Financial Times, the Banker, the Statist, uh, any number of other other papers that that come along after the Economist and to a certain extent imitate it, have ever quite reproduced that totalizing vision uh, of the world seen from the perspective of finance. Mm -hmm. Uh, but not sort of reducible to uh, whether or not you're going to um, get rich. Right. Right. So that, that makes a lot of sense in thinking about kind of these totalizing visions. Um, and to move into the 20th century, when we might kind of start thinking about some of the, the theoretical apparatus of your book, um, you talk about how in the early 20th century, um, with a new editor, Francis Hurst, the paper moves in the direction that we might think of as uh, toward new liberalism. Uh, that is a, a kind of liberalism that is defined by a greater acceptance of state intervention in particular areas of the economy or in welfare provision, um, and a, a skepticism, in this case, toward formal empire. Um, and I want to just kind of zoom back a bit and ask you about the the broader framework for your your book one of the things you're you want to trace is the way that the economist kind of answers these persistent questions that confront liberals in the 19th century so uh, specifically questions about the role of finance uh, the limits of democratic participation and the legitimacy of empire and you kind of show the ways that editors at different times have answered these questions in different ways um, so I was curious, it, it's generally, in this framework in which you think about liberals in this period kind of answering the same set of questions and, and fragmenting over the answers to those questions, does something like the new liberalism that the paper embraces in the early 20th century, does it look as new as it does in maybe other histories of liberalism, or is it another set of answers that have to a set of questions that have been dividing liberals throughout the 19th century. If that makes sense. So do you mean to what extent is the new liberalism really new? Right, right. I mean, I as guess... As opposed to in other histories? Right, or, or right. Are you asking something else about... Right, I guess in the sense that um, since you, you show the, the, the... You use The Economist to show people answering questions about finance, uh, democracy, and empire... Uh, is new liberalism a, a new set of answers to the same questions, or 
is it something kind of fundamentally new in which it's it's not addressing the same questions or it's addressing new questions? Uh, okay, so now okay now I see what you're asking. Um, well, it, I think new liberalism is is addressing a number of questions that may not be fully encompassed by that framework that I've created of democracy, finance, and empire. But I think it it just about works. Um, insofar as new liberalism is a response to the rise of a more organized uh, working class and the attempt on the part of liberals to respond to the demands of that working class, uh, not just for the vote, but for, um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, but for something like um, mm-hmm. social welfare, uh, as well as, um, you know, uh, uh, other basic sort of inclusion in the domestic polity, um, I, I think it works. Um, I think the, 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 the issue that's interesting to me is to, to, how, to what extent is new liberalism able to um, answer the, the questions the, the, of democracy, finance, emperor in, mm-hmm. in a genuinely new way that manages to escape from uh, some of the contradictions and tensions um, that those questions, that the answering of those questions has always mm-hmm. presented to liberals. So, um, you know, the new liberals after 1906 in the landslide election do introduce sort of rudimentary forms, very rudimentary forms of, 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 of old age, of, of social welfare. And some historians consider this to be the real origin of the British welfare state, you know, as opposed to mm-hmm. the, the beverage moment, um, or maybe not as opposed to the beverage moment, but as the kind of necessary precondition for, for the beverage plan. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent, that 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 is true, both in its both in its um, both in its uh, ambitions and in its limitations, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so old age pensions um, uh, 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 and and uh, uh, unemployment, uh, unemployment insurance in certain sectors uh, um, uh, and things mm-hmm. like that, right, are part of the new liberal legislative program. Also, that part of the new liberal legislative program is are new taxes to pay for those. Uh, the, those new pieces of social legislation, and and this is where the new liberals encounter a political um, conflict with the House of Lords, um, you know, which they kind of both shrink from and take on. Eventually, Lloyd George in his People's Budget, the House of Lords rejects it three times. There's a constitutional crisis. They threaten to flood the House with liberal, the House of Lords with liberal peers. Um, Eventually, they, 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 they put some limits on the ability of the House of Lords to interfere in, um, in, in budgetary questions, and they pass, the, they pass their bill. Um, but by then, we're already, you know, at, we're already a year or two away from the, uh, of the, from the First World War. Um, and, and one of the, the things that I, I think is, is, is interesting about the existing scholarship on the new liberals is that it treats the, 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 the new liberals in power um, up to 1914 in one way, right? There's this question of social reform, of, of, of the intellectual influence of, of people like T.H. Green um, and of German idealism as, as, a, as a way of escaping from the kind of liber- limits of li- li- laissez-faire liberalism of the earlier era. But it treats the actual prosecution of the First World War, which is also uh, affected by that liberal government, right? The same one that gives us social reform as something apart. Right, something quite different. It's as though the First World War comes out of a, out of a deep, you know, out of a, out of a clear, a, a clear sky, you know, um, as opposed to thinking about what it means that the liberals 
in that administration, with, with a very few exceptions, marched Britain into a war on the continent that someone like Francis Hurst, the editor of The Economist, thought was an absolutely awful idea, completely unnecessary to be opposed, uh, you know, if at all possible, and uh, uh, to be criticized uh, thereafter. And in 1916, he's fired for it. So if you like, this is a very long-winded way of answering your question. I think all of my answers so far have been a bit too long-winded, but um, if you if if you like one of the one of the ways that I use or wanted to 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 think about the Economist in that period is what does Francis Hurst's tenure at the helm of the Economist, which begins with the kind of landslide victory of the New Liberals in 1906, only to end with his being fired in 1916 for opposing Britain's involvement in the First World War? What does that mean about New Liberalism? What does it mean about its limits? What does it mean about its achievements, right? And and what does it, what does it do if we think about new liberalism not just as a kind of on the one hand a domestic agenda that achieved certain gains, uh, uh, um, and then the First World War as something else? But what if we think about them them together? And I think um, then the metric, the kind of my framework of democracy, finance, empire is extremely relevant because when it comes to the First World War, we see the role that finance and empire play so clearly. Uh, in, in, in Francis Hurst's, uh, you know, tenure. Right, and I think that leads nicely into um, the the interwar period after World War One, when can, you, you trace a couple interesting developments for the paper. On the one hand, um, you see this is a, a period of growth in readership from outside of Britain, particularly in, in the United States, um, and that's going to be a kind of an, a, a through line through a lot of the rest of the book is the increasing importance of the United States both as a market and as a kind of a, a beacon of liberalism for the writers and editors of the of the paper. And at the same time that maybe American readership is becoming more important, the liberal party in Britain in the 1920s is declining significantly in, in importance. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe both of those changes together, if you see a relationship, whether kind of liberalism in Britain is becoming dissociated from the Liberal Party and is becoming something that you find uh, it, it, across the political spectrum, both in, conserva- in, the, in the Conservative Party and in the new Labour Party, um, and maybe whether the growth in American readership um, also suggests that kind of liberalism is becoming more recognizably an international political project. Yeah, so you know George Dangerfield in uh, *Strange Death of Liberal England* famously posits um, this, this this theory, which is which is which it's a great book and it's it's a it's a very compelling thesis, although not maybe correct. Um, uh, that you know um, England, you know, it wasn't the world, it wasn't the First World War that finished off uh, liberalism in 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 England, although although it may have been its death knell. It was the kind of three crises of the rise of the suffragette movement, the rise of the working class movement, the large trade union movement, and um, and thirdly the the conflict over Home Rule in Ireland, which which you know in in July August of 1914 was where you know most British statesmen were directing their gaze, not at you know um, Sarajevo and the the assassination of, of the Archduke. So um, you know. 
the issue of, of, of what the First World War and the interwar period does to liberalism and the Liberal Party really fascinated me. Is the Dangerfield thesis correct? Is, you know, was this the strange death of liberal England? Is, is this the end of liberalism? So, I mean, basically, I say no, that actually the, the, the demise of the Liberal Party, which I do think is connected to its support for the First World War, its prosecution of the First World War, and then, of course, Lord George, Lord George enters into coalition up until 1922, then he falls. That's why the conservative uh, committee that chooses the prime minister and the one-party state that is that is modern-day Britain um, uh, is still called the 1922 committee. Um, even though the Liberal Party is never itself in contention again to form uh, uh, its own government, although it, it doesn't disappear, and the Peter Sloman has written very well about the kind of ongoing um, importance of the Liberal Party after uh, the the First World War. Um, I think that it's it's in fact so it's the the decline of 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 a, of a liberal party that bears the name liberalism, um, in fact is a, is almost a precondition if you like for liberalism, kind of expanding and becoming um, a kind of even more uh, widely accepted um, uh, 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 common sense mm. if you like. Mm -hmm. So um, the editor uh, in the interwar period, this guy named Walter Layton. Um, which uh, 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 who was once described as a, as the handsomest gray mind in Europe, um, uh, um, he uh, is not very well known. But he, uh, because he's no longer affiliated, I mean, he's connected to the Liberal Party, but because the Liberal Party itself is rather fractured and splintered and 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 not central uh, uh, in the way that it was, actually, the Economist can play. This really important role in that period of sort of diffusing liberal ideas, not just in in Britain, although it does that, you know, uh, uh, to, to conservatives, to, to 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 fellow liberals, and then also to, to to members of the Labour Party. Increasingly, the Economist begins to speak to and draw in uh, members of the Labour Party. Douglas Jay works at the Economist. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Crowther uh, 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 is a student of Keynes's at Cambridge, and then he becomes editor in 1939. And he also attempts to kind of uh, influence the Labour Party in a liberal direction, and and then also uh, across across mm -hmm. the water we have uh, we have the growth of, of of the Economist circulation in that period. Uh, although although actually it, it it's most pronounced sort of after the after the Second World War, but it begins in that earlier period. So so yeah, again mm -hmm. this is a, I'm, I'm I'm sort of bobbing and weaving, but um, I think that the eclipse of the Liberal Party. Is actually is, is in a strange way um, uh, 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 something that allows the Economist to, if you like, pose as a sort of nonpartisan um, uh, um, uh, representative of the extreme center. This is a phrase that Jeffrey Crowther coins to describe liberal opinion in the 1920s and 30s. You know, uh, an ideology without a political party. But maybe, maybe much stronger for that, mm -hmm. if you see what I mean, intellectually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. No. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you know, going forward into the the mid to even the later parts of the twentieth century, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is about the book is to show the almost at times surprising alliances and support that the Economist gives um, it as a paper was, I think generally supportive of the, at least some of the, the labor governments between 1945 and the 1960s. Um, it was not kind of completely opposed to labor in, in some of its heyday in the post-war period. 
Um, and you also show that at least some of the editors were kind of skeptical of the, well, I guess what we would now call neoliberalism and the neoliberalism represented by people like Thatcher and the, and the thinkers around, around her. Um, and so there's kind of, I don't even really have a question about that per se, but it's more, it's interesting that it seems that uh, this trajectory of liberalism after the decline of the liberal party means that it's kind of trying to, it's finding liberalism in places that I think histor historically now, we don't traditionally see it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Okay, that, that's a that's that's an interesting thought that I'll that I'll respond to maybe mm -hmm. as a way of answering that the question you already asked you know, slightly better um, or not. Uh, the I think I think one of the things that the Economist is able to do from the interwar period onwards, in part because it isn't any longer connected to a particular political party in the way that it once was, um, although although it ends up being quite close to the conservatives after. After a certain after a certain point in the nineteen late nineteen fifties, mm -hmm. um, is to kind of um, to set the boundaries, if you like, to the, the 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 rules by which the game is played. So when labor strays too far from what they consider to be the acceptable limits of liberalism, right now no longer confined to the liberal party, but as as sort of the, this again common sense of the nation from which it is impossible to to depart. Mm -hmm. um, they can issue a very sharp rebuke, right? And um, on the other hand, when the conservatives, who who they become increasingly close to, Alistair uh, Burnett um, uh, uh, is is a member of the Conservative Party. He is very close friends with Ted Heath and advises him to call uh, uh, his election uh, over who who governs Britain, um, right? This disastrous uh, election. Um, uh, so, so, so it's not the case that they they, they do not have a political uh, point of view, but 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 basically they're able to say in the aftermath of that election defeat in 1974, to 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 his uh, successors, in particular Thatcher and 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 her advisors and Keith Joseph and and and, and, and others who are, are seem to be um, heavily influenced by by uh, uh, Friedman and by by monetarist theory, mm -hmm. you know, hold on, this isn't going to work either. Uh, you know, you have to accept the fact of full employment, uh, even if, yes, we need to privatize these 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 dilapidated state-owned industries. That's a good idea. Greater competition, yes, that's a good idea too, uh, and, and so on. But there, do you see what I mean? It, yeah. it kind of it, it manages to kind of enforce what I would consider to be the limits, um, the, the 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 frame within which British politics continues to be conducted. You know, even mm -hmm. in the last few years, the the manifesto that the Labour Party presented, which, you know, under Corbyn was further to the left than anything we'd seen in, in a long time, but it was not sort of out, out, outside the bounds of a social democratic consensus that might have, that you might have expected to find in the, in, in 1945, mm -hmm. uh, right? This at, at the present time also was unacceptable, right? So, so it kind of, it, it, it's able to kind of um, to say what is and isn't acceptable from this perspective of, of, of the liberal center, um, even if it isn't um, sort of um, that, that, that kind of extremely laissez-faire paper it was in the 1840s, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think that that's maybe its kind of particular, particular power uh, or strength, if you like. I, I think that's really interesting. And I think kind of potentially at the same time or associated with it, it's certainly going on at the same time, um, is the, the, the move from a focus when it comes to 
international relations, um, a focus more on the United States as a kind of international guarantor of the kind of liberalism that it's trying to uh, set the bounds of in Britain. Uh, and so you, you mentioned in the earlier answer to the question that it was kind of in the post-World War II period that you start seeing more and more American readership of The Economist. And it's also kind of in the following decades as the Cold War becomes the defining geopolitical problem uh, that people at The Economist are thinking about, that the United States and its interventions become particularly important to their imagination of what spreading liberalism around the world looks like. So I was curious if you could just talk a little bit, maybe generally, about this shift to the United States as a, a, a beacon of liberalism internationally, according to the people who are following it, um, whether that has a relationship with an expanding readership outside of the UK, um, and how that looks going into an era of globalization when the readership of the, of the paper also expands outside of the Anglosphere. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that the turn to the United States in the post-Second World War period is initially seen as compatible with a continuation of British imperial commitments abroad. The, the paper sees them as connected, in fact, right? Britain is going to be a middle power between uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. That's why it advocates keeping uh, the Middle East bases, those bombers can reach the Soviet Union, after all. Um, of course, it also gives Britain um, access to oil. Uh, so so it's, it's, it's only really with, with Suez um, that the conflicts about whether Britain is itself a kind of vassal of the United States' empire or not comes to the fore. And I document this very intense debate that takes place at The Economist over how completely um, the paper should back American power, even if it means that Britain has to accept strict limits on what it can do on its own. Um, and, and, and eventually it, 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 does, it does sort of advocate for this kind of um, advisory role to, to, to the United States. But, but yes, The Economist is um, in the post-war period becoming read by, by, by American readers more, but the shift to the United States um, isn't entirely about that. The Economist doesn't make its big circulation push into the United States until the 70s under Andrew Knight, who later goes on to um, be editor of the, of the Daily Telegraph and then um, is very close to Rupert Murdoch uh, and the Murdoch Press. So that's, that's the moment when it really becomes, if you like, you know, that's when the American invasion takes place. Um, so the, 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 the turn to the United States is, I think, a, a, um, a quite consistent with their vision of liberalism. It's not something new to say that it takes imperial power to actually create a world in which the liberal conditions for free trade, for the um, a flow of investment uh, abroad, uh, for the legal prerogatives necessary to secure those investments, um, uh, all of that requires imperial power, and that's that's I think a line through in 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 in, in my paper. I'm sorry, my book. Um, and I think that uh, you know, quite early on, Wilson takes the line in contrast to Cobden and Bright that um, peace and free trade don't go together. 
that actually Britain is going to have to um, fight in China uh, uh, in the Second Opium War uh, to open up that country to trade in, in, in a joint expedition with France. Uh, they're going to have to combat Russian aggression as they see it against the Ottoman Empire, uh, in part because it is an illiberal power, um, autocratic, uh, intolerant, religious, um, and anti-free trade. And they're going to have to they're going to have to crush the Indian Rebellion in 1857. Um, all examples of of force that contradict that earlier position that of du commerce that's going you know that commerce is going to 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 make us all more polite, more moral, and more peaceful. Really, from very early on, that's 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 completely overturned. So to me, it you know the the, the journalists, the economists are there are a variety of reasons that they turn to the United States. There's not just one, but I think that the the sense that the um, that the conditions for globalization require a policeman, even when that policeman can no longer be liberal Britain, it should be liberal America, right? So that, that I think, is part of the bridge. Right, yeah, I, I found that really interesting, kind of going even up to the 21st century. Um, I, 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 one of the editors uh, says that they want the economist to become, they call, the user's handbook for globalization. Hmm. So kind of the voice of uh, this trend toward globalization, while at the same time, really insisting against some other kind of profits of globalization, that globalization requires kind of really, uh, in some cases, aggressive American intervention, um, and that they're kind of making an argument for what this globalization will actually look like going into the into even the 21st century. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, 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 the economists... Um... You know some some of the pieces in the Economist that I read. Well, first of all, during the Cold War itself, um, anti-communist uh, infiltrated by um, you know uh, uh, how to put it um, uh, journalists who 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 accepting information from the Information Research Department, um, which was a propaganda or an anti-Soviet propaganda organization set up under the. Uh, the the first uh, post-war labor government in 1947 or 48, um, working with or for various intelligence agencies that were working against detente. Um, so on the one hand, the the kind of it's cold it's endorsement of Cold War uh, militarism in its in its most uh, sort of um, virulent form, and that includes the that an absolute um, s- support for the American war in Vietnam. Right up until the very bitter end, um, that's one aspect of their their what, what you call their kind of their their um, uh, their kind of imp- the, the imperial stakes of globalization. Uh, and then in the in in after the end of the Cold War, in, in, instead of sort of witnessing a diminution of that of that position, you know, okay, well the American you know the, some of these bases can close and the American military budget can can be reduced and um, you know. In fact, their 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 advocacy for America's wars in that post you know post Soviet world post Cold War world is, if anything, even greater. And you know, one of the one of the the, the moments I was that's most um, sort of uh, a good example of that is is uh, the editor in the '90s and early 2000s, Bill Emmett, uh, writes a piece called "Present at the Creation," uh, referencing Dean Acheson, which predicts that you know. Um, the United States, if it invades Iraq and Afghanistan um, and maybe a few other countries to boot, 
will have reordered the world in much the same way that the kind of early uh, American statesmen um, of the post Second World War period uh, uh, had. You know, so it's it's really. I mean, I don't think that. <laughs> I'm not sure any of that has has been subjected to a kind of real analysis before, but I was I I was a bit shocked to see quite quite how consistent uh, that aspect of the Economist's coverage is. Right, right, and and that certainly seems to define its coverage of um, international relations and certainly of of American foreign policy up to the 21st century. Um, and since we've gotten to the 21st century, I kind of want to end that the, the narrative arc of the book you uh, with a question. You end um, talking about the last couple of years of The Economist and how it has responded to many of the other trends that have affected publishing, slightly re- stagnant readership and lower ad revenue. Um, and you talk about some of the things that it's done to try to recover from this by going to a premium model for subscription, which makes it somewhat more expensive, um, and having kind of more multimedia and having events for, uh, for, for subscribers and for people associated with it. Um, so I was curious, and this is, since it's so recent, this is more speculation perhaps than it is historical analysis. But on the one hand, we might look at these trends and say that uh, these are things that that magazines and publications have been doing consistently to try to uh, recover lost ad revenue. But on the other hand, you know, it might tell us something about what liberalism looks like in the very recent 21st century. Would you speculate that this represents liberalism as a, a kind of an identity or a lifestyle or something different about liberalism uh, if we're to go to the very recent history of The Economist? Yeah, I think that's a good. Um, I like I like the way that you've you've connected the kind of material conditions um, of the paper's publication, uh, readership circulation, uh, and 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 so forth with with um, with 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 the changes to the sort of worldview, um, conceptualizing it as a, as a bit of a lifestyle. Um, yeah, I think that I think there's something there's something to that, especially because of you know in an American context where the definition of liberalism is especially unclear since you know the the for 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 reasons that 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 are quite interesting uh in in themselves in the sense that liberal really only gets taken up as a political calling card in the US um in the uh, early 20th century and then uh is adopted uh, by 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 FDR to describe the new deal um uh, so so that it has has really left wing connotations in 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 this context uh I think that the social liberalism of the of, of the Economist, the fact that it in an American setting, the plurality of its readers are in America now over eight hundred thousand, although the, those numbers may have changed since I last uh, checked. Um, the 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 kind of emphasis on legalizing drugs, uh, uh, decriminalizing prostitution, uh, uh, restrictions on gun ownership, um, th- things like that. Um, you know, combined with an emphasis under the new editors, Annie Minton Beddoes, on kind of breakneck technological change, on you know quantum uh, computing, on genome editing, on uh, 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 you know things that we might connect more with lifestyle, uh, uh, you know, longevity, right, um, uh, aging. Um, uh, I think all of that, yeah, it, it does speak to this 
to 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 a, to a changing self presentation, um, whether or not it indicates any kind of um, underlying softening of or opening to the left or to the right, because there's different ways you can you know you can you can move. Um, that I don't know. That 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 I've seen much less evidence of. Right in contrast to the period of new liberalism or in the 1920s and 30s, where, where it was evident that the economist was both pushing back against some of the, the, the calls for you know, the socialization of investment or the death of the rentier that Keynes was calling for, or even the kinds of the true kinds of deficit spending, at least in the 1930s, that he that he wanted, it was also taking on board some of those ideas, right? And 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 sort of um, uh, uh, creating a version of liberalism that that um, in a pragmatic and piecemeal way could kind of continue to embody the common sense of the nation. I'm not so sure what that positioning does. I think the economist will continue to 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 to, to thrive, even if it its circulation is slightly lower or its print circulation is combined with more digital ad, um, more, more digital uh, subscriptions, uh, even if its ad revenue is lower and so forth. Right, but I I, I wonder. I'm not quite sure um, if it's fully taken on board the the the, the kind of crisis of the present, uh, as, as might be indicated by a kind of a concrete um, policy move or, or, or set of prescription, you know, I, I, they, I don't see them endorsing Bernie Sanders for president. I don't see them reconsidering their virulent attacks on Jeremy Corbyn. Um, you know, they wouldn't even in, endorse uh, Elizabeth Warren, who's much more kind of technocratic and planified version of, of, of change, their much more wonkish um, vision of, of, of how to fix uh, what's wrong with America. You know, you could imagine appealing to a set of liberals who had, you know, kind of taken the measure of the of of the crisis of the moment and sort of said, "Well, we're going to have to do some compromising here." That that I don't see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it did strike me. I mean, last night I, I just looked on the homepage of the Economist online, and it did strike me that there was a lot of discussion about kind of technological change and the way the future will be look different, and the way uh, you know, digital technology will change our lives really not so much in the in a strictly business sense i mean right it's not just about the kind of technologies one might invest in or that might look lucrative but rather kind of speculation about how technology will change our lifestyles and potentially solve political problems and it's interesting to think about whether that's a, a new development in the outlook of the kind of liberalism it represents or or something much older um, right. I mean, maybe it has its corollary in in the kinds of, you know, freaking out about um, artificial intelligence that goes on regularly uh, in the mainstream press. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, sort of both an opportunity and a danger. Right. Right. So, uh, I mean, that's we've we've taken it now all the way up into the present day and um, the, the even the most the very most recent issues of the Economist. So. I want to ask before we end um, if you'd like to tell us about any new projects you're working on or anything new that you've been thinking about since you finished the book. It would be nice to explore some of the themes of the book um, in greater detail elsewhere. So the, the, the tripartite frame of democracy, finance, empire, I think um, could, could be usefully expanded into other um, directions. So for example, um, the crisis of 1914 uh, in the city of London, about which some, some has now been written, 
uh, interests me me very much. The kind of the, the this aspect of the of the First World War, the relationship between you know uh, uh, financial speculation and the financial economy and the onset of the First World War. This is not a topic that has gone unexplored. Um, it's been discussed since you know Lenin had a few things to say about it, but um, I, I think that the Economist is such a rich source, um, and I, I, I do hope that the book um, allows people to to sort of um, use that archive that is available online to to kind of go off in other directions. I think the book tries to set up um, the the just the, the sheer extent of the Economist's influence and imprecation within um, these. Uh, uh, apparatuses of, 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 of global finance and of, of, of state power. Um, and I think that it, 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 there's work to be done to, to kind of, um, you know, I, I speak about Kenya or about, or about, um, or about uh, Malaya or about, uh, uh, you know, about Cyprus and what the economists had to say about that and often the ways in which economist journalists were there on the ground or connected to, 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 to um, leaders or central bankers or whoever. Um, and so I kind of hope that, that, that people, that this sparks some interest in, in, in using that resource that is The Economist to kind of, to go further than I did. Um, in terms of my own kind of projects, I, I'm interested in a, a number, a number of things. I haven't totally settled on one, um, but I am, I am, I am, I am sort of, I, 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 after working in particular on the twenties and thirties and the relationship between Keynes and, uh, and, and the growth of finance and the problems of finance, I, I became more interested in uh, questions of planning, um, and um, I have a kind of ambition to write something about the intellectual history of the of planning, of the idea of of um, a comparative history that 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 maybe starts with the Saint Simonians in 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 the early nineteenth century, um, but then moves up to the nineteen twenties uh, and thirties and looks at different ways in which planning was conceptualized, not just in Britain, but also in France, in Belgium, um, in Austria, uh, uh, and in Germany, with um, obviously the Soviet experiment kind of looming over that, 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 um, that issue of, 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 of how to deal with you know, the Great Depression and there being right-wing answers to that and more left-wing answers to that and um, sort of a project something like to something like that, you know, is, is sort of where I'm leaning at the moment. Well, that sounds very exciting. And I look forward to uh, hopefully reading, reading about it as you work on it. Professor Alexander Zevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Simon. Thank you.